Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. To share or not to share? That is the question on today's AAMFT podcast. Self-disclosure is when a therapist shares personal information with clients during the session. You know, when I was in training, I was taught the heuristic wait, which stood for why am I telling? That's aimed at getting therapists to consider whether they would be self-disclosing expressively for the client's benefit or if they would be doing it to fulfill a personal need. If the therapist is inclined to self-disclose to gratify their own need, obviously it's advised to abstain in order to prioritize the client's need. But the question of what constitutes ethical and useful self-disclosure, one that comes up regularly during the training of systemic therapists. So many of you might find this weight rule of thumb helpful in guiding decision, but others wonder, how do we assess whether or not our clients are likely to benefit from our self-disclosure? And are certain types of self-disclosure more useful than others? As therapists, we need to know about in-session self-disclosure to make decisions that uphold to our general ethical principles of beneficence and non-malfeasance. Graham Danzer is the author of Therapist Self-Disclosure, an evidence-based guide for practitioners. The book gives clinicians professional and practical guidance on how and when to self-disclose in therapy. Chapters weave together theory, research, case studies, and look at dynamics of the therapeutic relationship and things like ethics and vulnerability factors. Chapters examine self-disclosure with specific populations, including LGBTQ, multicultural, clients suffering from trauma, those at risk for suicide, and those with physical or intellectual disabilities. book is helpful to graduate students, early career practitioners, and more seasoned therapists that are trying to understand the concept of self-disclosure better. Enjoy this discussion, and it'll make you think about what you're already doing as far as self-disclosure, and maybe what you need to consider. And we'll be back after the interview. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. So happy to be joined today by Graham Danzer. And we're going to talk about a topic that many of our listeners have requested. And it's a very polarizing topic in the field of psychotherapy generally, and even specifically couple and family therapy, which is primarily our listenership here on the AAMFT podcast. We're talking about self-disclosure. Is it helpful? Does it hurt? What do you disclose? What do you not disclose? 
Graham is an expert on that. He wrote a book all about therapist self-disclosure that we're going to talk about throughout our interview. But Graham, the first question is always, listeners want to know a little bit about our guest. How'd you get interested in becoming a therapist generally and specifically in this topic of therapist self-disclosure? Great way to start. Much like the Carl Jung wounded healer conceptualization, when I was much younger, somebody helped me much through my earlier problems than I expected to to happen. And that really got me interested in the process of doing therapy. My early training was in substance abuse treatment, which is a much more directive approach, uh, much more active and concrete and almost in a crisis model. And something that made for a less easily chartable course through development is self-disclosure in, in many models of substance abuse treatment is the intervention. Um, it's, it's much more common than I, I think most of us in a clinical practice would, would typically talk about as part of one's orientation. And I found it a great challenge to figure out how do I take with me from that model, you know, the aspect that's almost a bit more of a peer model and into a therapy consulting room, which I I think most of us would agree is much less directive, much more listening. How do I show that I'm following with my face less than my words, or more, more so with my face than my words? It's not such usually an active model. And that was what led me to basically spend about two years going through everything I could find on the topic of self-disclosure and trying to figure out what academic knowledge is out there that can help me reconcile this and hopefully give something back to the profession. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned substance abuse treatment and the old adage in the field that the best therapists or the best substance abuse counselors were recovering or former addicts themselves. And to do that, they had to have credibility and talk about their experience. But you're right, how different in some ways that world is from traditional training in psychotherapy. So that's quite an interesting story you got there. So you did a lot of research putting this book together. Let's get some terms together to orient our listeners to start with. What constitutes ethical and useful self-disclosure, first of all? The most recurring finding in the literature, uh, just briefly, uh, the, the research that I did is I printed out about 130 articles. I highlighted all the points that seemed to be most relevant and helpful to all of us. I organized those points under headings that were logical, and those headings became the chapters of the book. And I talked about this in the ethics chapter. I would say this has also resonated with my practice after publication. Generally, ethically appropriate disclosures are brief and relevant, generally of lower intimacy content, maximally helpful when disclosing of our real-time feelings, more so than historical content, and quickly followed by a return to what's going on with the client. So less so that I share a lengthy story about myself, uh, more so that there's a quick showing of reciprocity and a quick return to the client's processing, at times helped by asking the client directly how the self-disclosure was received by them and and trying to gauge the reaction uh, both verbally and non-verbally. Interesting. So feelings, your your honest reaction to what the client is saying uh, more than anecdotes or stories that would normalize and quickly bringing it back to the present focus, which is what you're working on with the client or system. That makes clinical sense. What are the benefits 
do you think of self-disclosure? Those disclosures that are infrequent, uh, well-timed, relevant to the client's processing, communicating a sense of similarity, typically benefit in terms of the relationship, uh, the, the more union sense of you know the client feeling cared about, kind of a here and now almost Yalom kind of experience. And in terms of presenting the therapist as a more accessible helping other, something that I took away from the reading on the substance abuse literature that was, was real, and I, I was trying to figure out how to reconcile this best. Uh, in, in substance abuse treatment, there's a bit more of a peer helping kind of component. And something that I found helpful to kind of reconcile my own ethical questions about how best to navigate this so I'm most helpful and and most appropriate as a practitioner uh, is that it is ultimately, you know, we, we want to be able to convey a sense of, of accessibility. I'm here to help and I'm not a wooden removed other. But at the same time, it's it's ultimately not a relationship of equals, right? That we're the professional, we're expected to have boundaries and are, are approached as a person of trust. And let's do the flip of that. So those are the benefits. What do you think, if not done correctly, the negative consequences, or as we like to say in psychotherapy, the iatrogenic effects when the intent is to do good or to help, but the opposite happens. So the iatrogenic effects of self-disclosure in psychotherapy. Particularly when there's an excess of disclosure or very high intimacy disclosures, it's likely to be a rupture, potentially a more significant rupture, especially if it's coming from a therapist personality that may be less self-aware, may be a little bit more inclined to disclosing. There was an author, D'Angelo, who wrote a paper in 2017 that I really found helpful as a practicing clinician that talked about how good disclosures are usually those that are not impulsive, but there's a little bit of thinking out about, you know, how is this relevant to the focus of treatment. You know, where is this disclosure going in terms of how I'm trying to help the client? Those disclosures that are more impulsive and are potentially longer, a a bit more about me than about who the person I'm supposed to be helping are likely to convey a sense of role reversal, are going to be intrusive on the client's experience. Ways that it was talked about in the literature are a sense of uh, kind of a, a negative reaction, anxiety, irritability. I would think also could be frightening, may communicate to uh, the person on the receiving end uh, who's the helper and who's the being helped in this relationship. You know, it's interesting. Yes, there's a balance between making yourself accessible and not in this very therapist is expert mode, but also if you show probably too much vulnerability or make it too much about you, you run the risk of not seeming credible maybe to the client. And instead of seeming like, I am like you, flawed, just like you, but becoming then not someone that the client or the system believes is able to be a credible conduit of change. We have many choices, consumers, on how to pick a therapist. And a lot of times, First way you see or pick a therapist, either by someone that you know, a referral from a trusted source or a friend, or you go to a web page. So this idea of self-disclosing as a way to assess fit and clients have natural questions, 
to assess fit with a therapist. So let's start. What do you think about what a therapist will self-disclose as far as marketing? So they're obviously gold standards as far as talking about your education level, your training, anything specific certification you may have received. But what do you think about what a therapist reveals about their personal life or other things about how they view the world on a website as far as self-disclosure? One of the things that I pulled away from all that digging through articles that I I found really interesting, uh, there were a number of therapist writer papers that were on whether the therapist's sexuality may be an informed consent issue rather than a more of a clinical issue. Also, religious identification for clients who it would be difficult to assume that the therapist's sexuality is not going to be relevant in the treatment or their religious identification. Uh, Should a client sit down and demand to know, are you a Christian? Or other scenarios like that where there's certainly a a potential clinical component, you know, why why would the person want to know? And for many clients, it may be seen as an issue of informed consent. There was, of course, no real clear scripted answer for all of us and would, of course, be different depending on the specifics of the dyad. If I'm giving an answer that is affirmative, if if the client, for example, uh, this was talked about in the LGBTQ literature, uh, if they were to ask me, uh, are you gay? And they've identified as such, and I'm answering in the affirmative, that that's likely to be a good contribution to the relationship. I didn't find anything in the literature that had a real strong commentary elsewise. Same thing, are you a Christian? If I was to say yes, that's probably going to be beneficial to the relationship. Hard to come up with a scenario where it's going to be more harmful. And at the same time, uh, there's, of course, going to be a, a clinical and contextual factor to consider. You know, when are they asking in the relationship? What seems to be the the motivation? And I think probably most importantly, in a a clinical sense, is there something that they're moving away from? Of course, asking that kind of question is more cognitive and applied to the idea of, you know, kind of marketing, what should I reveal about myself? I think that would be a helpful basis to sort out that question. Would I want to market myself with the clinical context or informed consent in mind? I also think that not only is the website important, but that first meeting, my typical approach is after practicing for 21 years, I say, and I'm primarily my practice is relation couples and families. So you have multiple people in the room, which we can talk about later too. So I say, I'm a complete stranger to you guys. I'm going to be asking you a lot of personal questions. If you anything you want to know about me, uh, my background, my training, how I view couple and family relationships, please ask. And if something comes to you, if you don't have a question now, feel free to ask it once we start doing our work. So in doing that, I give them permission. I, If they are curious, I let them quench that. But I'm also putting it out there from the very beginning. Now, I don't know, 20 years ago, I trained couple and family therapists and many young couple and family therapists are chronologically young. They're professionally young. They they aren't in relationships. They don't have children. They don't necessarily feel like credible sources. So they are a little more gun shy about their revealing things like that. So what do you think is best practices as far as in an initial session, what is to self-disclose and how to create a context that allows for curiosity from a client or system. A colleague who joined me in writing the book, Jennifer Henretti, had a point that I really felt like was a helpful structure. 
She mentioned that it may be helpful for therapists to consider developing a personal policy on self-disclosure. I, I was taking away from that potentially to share that with clients. I currently work in a forensic setting with individuals accused of serious felonies that are uh, essentially, there's a question of if their mental health is so great they're unable to return to court. Because of the security issues, there's a greater security risk around self-disclosing. You know, so what I would usually say for my personal policy, if I'm asked questions, I'll often say I I don't usually talk about my private life, uh, but I I don't know that I would be so restricted outside of a forensic setting. But I I do think the personal policy could be helpful. Yeah. Say more about that if if our listeners know, oh, this has made them think I should develop a personal policy around self-disclosure. What should you use as kind of guidelines or points on the pathway to developing a policy? What, What should you be thinking about? Yeah, I I think, you know, something that I would probably say if I was in a private setting, not talking to, you know, to be frank, individuals accused of homicide, uh, sex offenses, drug dealing, having contraband issues. I think what I might explain, just so I think following your explanation as well, there's a reasonable expectation of the therapeutic process. I might add something along the lines of some of the purposes of therapy are to be able to, for you to talk about your feelings and the things that are, are going on in your life, I'm for the most part going to be listening. Usually going to be better if, if you're doing more of the talking. If there are things that were important for you to know about me, I'd, I'd be open to having a discussion. But under most circumstances, it's going to be more to your benefit for me to listen and to get to know you and to, to hear your story. I think it's important for therapists to know why the client is curious. So sometimes if I get a question, Again, I'm comfortable asking most things, but if I don't know where that was coming from, I feel like it's important to understand why they're asking it, to have this element of curiosity as contrasted with defensiveness. So how would you tell our listeners to tap into that curiosity, even if a client asks them something that they're not normally accustomed to answering in a therapy setting. You know, there's probably a person in the world aspect of this. You know, what can I say to clients that will be authentic? It, it aligns with my way of relating with people. Uh, I've, I've never been one to say, why would you ask? Why do you want to know? That feels to me confrontational in a way that I don't know that would be beneficial especially in an earlier stage of a relationship. Somebody else may be able to say that more tactfully. But I, I think certainly, you know, I'm thinking back on my clinical experiences where there was more of a a personal question to me. I've had clients, for example, ask me, you know, are you married? Things like that that are, you know, what's your religious belief? And in my recollections, it was a fairly abrupt transition. And thinking, I don't know that I recognized it in the moment, but there was a moving away from, from what was being talked about previously. And in a way where I think it would be good clinical work to try to carefully and empathically get back to that. Almost like when you're supervising students and you're listening to a process recording, they suddenly become much more cognitive and it's often helpful to say, you were moving away, what what happened there? Why we were in affect, uh, Vanderkolk especially talks about how, how beneficial that is. You know, that's really the, the meat and potatoes of the meal. And we're going to the salad. If it's very disjointed, then it is more confusing. If it follows a logical train of the content of the therapy, it's probably easier for the therapist to understand why the client is curious about it. But you're right. If it if it feels out of place, uh, if it feels disjointing to you, it, it's probably worth noting. If I'm your client and I'm asking you a personal question, why at that moment and what was 
what would I might have said if that didn't happen? There's a family therapeutic paper, I can't remember the author, but they talked about how it's often beneficial in family therapy to try to provide an intervention that addresses what is missing in the family system. And I, I found that really clinically rich and helpful to my own clinical thinking. And I, I would say the same thing in regards to a client's sudden personal question. Uh, even if it was less abrupt, I think I would want to be getting to what was underneath. If we didn't go there, if they didn't ask that, where would we be going? And I would be trying to find a good clinical way to get back there. I was thinking not only the website, do we put that out there to potential consumers of who we are, and that is a way of self-disclosure. Not only in that first session, as we've talked about, do you entertain questions about your training, your background. It's also how we keep our offices in the sense that, okay, so if you walk into my office, I have my credentials and I have some family pictures that I'm comfortable with and I have some other pieces of memorabilia that say a little bit about me. I'm in Kentucky, so I have a bottle of Maker's Mark bourbon in my office connected to my therapy room. So I have things that say a lot about me. And I think sometimes people also are curious about what they see and that could start a conversation versus you go into a therapy office that's very generic or cookie cutter where there are no personal effects or touches. What are your thoughts on how we keep our office as far as self-disclosing who we are to clients and opening up a dialogue? Revealing about me. I, I miss having an office where I could express, you know, in, in a forensic setting, you, you don't take clients back to an office. So I have this dingy little public hospital office that I've been telling myself for about five years I was going to make respectable and I still haven't done it. Thinking back to there's a part of the literature that talks about how we might reveal much about ourselves by how we dress, uh, by the pictures that we have up, whether or not we have a wedding ring. Also, and I, I, I thought it would just be been so helpful if there was more writing about this. When women are pregnant and, and continuing to conduct therapy, you know, how do you, how do you ignore that, right? How is it not going to have some kind of impact on the room? And you know, the the writing that's about kind of presenting in the way that you're comfortable and so forth has always kind of resonated with me as a, again, kind of person in the world. Some of the other writings in the literature that I found helpful were related to uh, almost kind of what we call here in the South walking around sense. Religious bannering is is probably not going to necessarily be helpful. You know, nothing too dramatic, but at the same time, showing a sense of comfort with oneself, you know, presenting my office in a way that is, is fairly normal for me, is not terribly intrusive. Uh, something I remember reading about that really seemed to make a lot of sense in relation to my family therapy work was that it, it was usually building of credibility for therapists to being open to sharing with the parents that they also were parents. That, that really made a lot of sense to me. It was less relevant to my work in family therapy because I was much younger, uh, I think 24 or 25, uh, but the families that were coming in had adolescents. And so there was, a, I think, a benefit of working with families and specifically the identified problem as a helper who was not much, much older. So that if I would meet with them for collateral sessions individually, it wouldn't have as awkward of a feeling. And where, where I'm going with that is I think for my office, there was a way that you would, you would want to relate with the adolescent to get them more engaged. Um, but I also think appropriate to make sure that the communication is 
I'm a responsible adult. I'm not trying to kind of relive my own adolescence by relating with you in a way that really doesn't seem genuine, you know, not trying to adopt their lingo and so on, but being myself. It's interesting, the age of the client you made me think about. So a adult client asking a therapist how old they are is different than a adolescent or a teenage client asking how old to try to gain a reference point to what does this therapist know? Can they relate to me? Or a teenager asking, what do you do? Do you play video games? Do you have trying to have some connection points, some cultural cachet to connect on? So it's also very different who is asking, not only why they're asking, but who is asking. Like you said, a parent asking if the therapist has children of their own seems like a relevant question. A, a person asking a couple in couples therapy, asking if that therapist is in a relationship. Again, these seem like relevant questions. Yeah, a bit more of an informed consent, I would say. Um, you know, kind sure. of if they're asking, it's almost less that they're asking a personal question in a process sense. It's it's more to establish what they might see as the therapist's qualification to treat, which I don't think we would be as presumptive of. If I was a therapist in recovery, that doesn't necessarily mean that I am the therapist for all others in recovery. I think this also depends on your theoretical orientation and how you were trained. You know, in many of these postmodern models and approaches to therapy, not only systemic therapy, but even individual therapy, is this idea that therapy is a conversation. It is a dialogue. And the therapist is not in a one-up position and the client is not in a one-down position. It's the client is the expert and the therapist is along with them on that journey going back and forth. So I think also, I don't know if you found this in your research, but probably depending on the therapist training and preferred theoretical orientation also influences their opinions and their level of self-disclosure in a session. Certainly. What I personally, you know, and, the, and the, there was something really interesting historically is that uh, the research talked about how in the old Freudian, in the early Freudian models, there was a, a strong opposition to self-disclosure, even though Freud himself did at length. Around the time of the civil rights movement, the development and real kind of advancement of the feminist models, uh, Michael White's narrative therapy coming later, um, is that there increasingly became a, a progression towards a more two-person relationship. And around the time, again, of civil rights, I mean, it almost a sense, you know, we talked about parallel process between client and supervision, and almost a sense of a broader systemic kind of perspective, you know, almost the meso level of uh, the therapeutic flow of how we're doing therapy changing with the times. Personally, though, earlier in my training, I was supervised by a union therapist. At least for me, I think that I was a better therapist when working in a long-term model, uh, not being so active, not necessarily not disclosing, but not advancing into a more two-person conversational back and forth. Something that I found really helpful was to look at the extent to which that may be comfortable for me and possibly because there's something else going on in the room. Perhaps I'm moving the conversation in a less intimate direction because a more intimate direction may be difficult for me. And of course, in that situation, not helpful to the client. Uh, so that if I'm moving in the direction of disclosing more, being more active, what is leading me to that place? And might I need to, in the union sense, don't just do something, stand there. Yes, I like hearing that. Let me give you some other scenarios that are common. A therapist is trying to, and let's say for the sake of our show, a couples therapist is trying to make a connection point 
with the couple they're working with, either teaching a skill around communication or fair fighting or building some type of intimacy. So they tell a story from their own marriage as a way, again, to normalize, to show that this is a universal process that even the best couples have to go through. What do you think about sharing anecdotes like that where you're trying to illustrate a skill and before the client can recognize it in their own life or relationship, they need to see it being demonstrated in another relationship, almost like uh, some models call it a disquisition that's too close to home so the client can't relate to it directly on their relationship, but they can ease into it if they see it from another point of view, in this case, the therapist's own relationship. I think something that could be on some level intriguing for the listening audience, I found no articles on self-disclosure in a couples therapy context. Nobody said anything about it. And I read 130 articles. And I, the reason I think that's intriguing is that it gives, it gives our, our clinical brains more room to come up with what is, what's the right answer here. But unfortunately, I don't, I don't think I have an expertise on that. It's interesting being a purveyor of the field and being able to uh, talk to many of the innovators and pioneers uh, in our field through this podcast series and thinking of people like Michelle Weiner davis the late David Snarch, John Julie Gottman. They often, in their writing, in their workshops, in their books, talk about their own relationship when they're teaching couple skills. So I think a lot about this a lot and I see a lot of couples as well. So I think it can be useful as long, as I said earlier, you're normalizing that, hey, this is a process. This is how, this is the skill. This is how some people use it. This is how it works in my relationship. And when you're using it to psychoeducate, that even the best get stuck. Like we know that it is normal. Fighting doesn't predict who the masters versus the disasters of marriage, as Gottman would say. It's how you fight. So I think the psychoeducation normalizing, I think, could be good uses of self-disclosure. Now, let's talk about somebody who's listening to this. You're like, oh, crap, I, I may be talking too much. Like, how do you know? What do you think is a good kind of mental checklist? Now, if you're in supervision and you're still pre-licensed or early in your career, you have a natural checkpoint with a supervisor. But let's say you're out in the field and practicing. How can you gauge your own level of self-disclosure, whether it is appropriate or what I want to move into now and then our next couple of questions, if you're disclosing too much? Wow, that's, that's a great question because there's a difficulty of following your own process uh, as Jung talks about listening with your third ear. And the way that it's talked about in the literature in a more uh, academic sense that's not as easy to apply is, is that you want to have a, a level of self-awareness, discernment, all that kind of stuff. I offered a reaction to that saying, you know, the, the people who think they have it may be those who don't. How do you know that you have that? I'm thinking, especially if you're talking too much and the client's just sitting there looking at you, you might think that your speech is, is getting through when, when far from it, right? <laughs> Very difficult to do so. Reminds me of something I read also that something I was a bit afraid of. It said, you know, that frequently there's a suspicion that early therapists self-disclose too much in, in research and interviews, they found that they disclose very little and that there's some concern that when one gets licensed as far away from supervision, they a bit go off the deep end. Uh, they start doing things that they academically know not to be for the best, but essentially don't have that 
uh, as you talked about, that additional layer of supervision to say, wait a minute, what's going on here? I think something that I, I personally try to do, as you probably noticed, I can be a bit long-winded at times, try to remind myself to, you know, whatever I want to say in 30 words, can I say it with my face and not necessarily have to say anything? Is there a way that I can take 50 words and make it five? Easier to, I think, figure out afterwards, reflect on sessions and say, wait a minute, maybe maybe I was talking too much. And I, I think also being willing to seek disconfirming consultation. Uh, I found that it's frequently helpful to seek out consultation with colleagues who I know uh, have disagreed with me and will in the past. Uh, easier to seek out consultation with friends, with, with the kind, um, knowing perhaps on an unconscious level that they're likely to be more affirming and perhaps uh, lead me to think that I'm, I'm doing a better service to clients than I really am. I study these common factors, no matter what model you adhere to or what your theoretical orientation, these, these qualities that make therapy effective, whether it be the alliance or a motivated client or a skilled therapist, this idea of feedback, both the skill of soliciting it, eliciting it, and also providing it. So one of the things, and you can get feedback verbally, or you can have uh, questionnaires or forms that give you feedback in a regular way in this way of having kind of a deliberate outcome-informed practice. But I think one of the questions that therapists don't act enough as far as the activity level. Am I active enough in this session? Am I talking too much? So I think a way if, if you're a listener and you have some type of routine outcome management system or some type of survey you use, I think asking about the level of self-disclosure on a, some type of survey or just asking your client. You know, I share a lot of personal stories. Are those helpful or are they not helpful? And I think first to do that, as you said, you have to be self-aware and you have to pick up either in the client or the system's feedback, either verbal or nonverbal, that there may be a problem. But I think there's a good, it's a good question to ask anyway. And I'm, as I'm talking out loud here, I probably don't do that enough. I mean, I do tell a lot of stories, again, parallel processes, uh, therapeutic antidotes that are very purposeful. And that may or may not be a good fit for your client or system, but you don't know unless you ask. So I think asking is very important. I'm thinking back to also, you know, there's the within group differences, but also the between group differences. Yeah, I was, I was thinking back to my work with adolescents, mostly males. Uh, now that I think about it, I don't remember them asking much of anything. And I, it was written about in the literature that teenagers frequently don't want to know that much about stranger adults, that they're probably forced to come see by their parents or probation officers and so on. That resonated with my practice. Uh, but I'm also thinking there's some mentions in the literature of how when there's when there's a between group difference, uh, there's a, a bit of an insinuation that we might need to reach out a bit more actively to facilitate engagement and that not doing so at the times that would have been good to do so appears to have a relationship with earlier dropout. That I think there was a finding referenced in a couple of the studies that when there's a cross-cultural matching uh, between Caucasian and not Caucasian client, that the dropout somewhere around 50%. Uh, within, I think, after the first session even. Doing a lot of supervision work of therapists that are working with very, I call them hostage clients, people there against their will. Like you said, the teenager the teenager that is only there because they have no choice, their parent has forced them to come. And then therapists in, in, in trying to join, like 
actually overdoing it, sharing too much, trying to make some point of connection with a reluctant teenager. So I, I can see how that plays out. Another thing that has come up a lot in the age that we're living in now are hot topics that people bring up at the beginning of the session or because they are on the news and a client brings it up and naturally wants to know what a therapist thinks about it. So a supervisor once told me, as long as you don't talk about religion or politics in a session, you will be good. But I am curious about things like religion, politics, and even now in the world we live in, vaccine status, which is a very polarizing in this COVID world that we live in. What are your thoughts on those type of sensitive topics around disclosure? I, I would think the differentiation of is this a related, is this primarily cl clinical process or informed consent is a is a helpful way to triage. If it's an informed consent issue, that that would suggest that we're, we're answering in a giving the client the information they need to make a decision on, are you the right therapist for me? You know, that's the that's the, the idea behind it. And I, I think that almost makes it a bit easier uh, because we're, we're talking about it as an ethical issue, almost client right to know. I would think, uh, and I, this would be debatable, I, I think that the, you know, the vaccine status would probably fall into that due to health issues. For clients of certain religious backgrounds, I, I think that that would, is probably where they're coming from. I think also possible if the question is uh, from LGBTQ clients who may feel strongly about being paired in it with matching. Um, you know, also with a therapist of same sexual identification, I, I think that that could be an informed consent issue. With a clinical issue, much, much more challenging. The client was talking about politics and, and kind of said, what do you think? My gut level reaction, which can be problematic in making self-disclosure decisions, is probably don't go there. It would seem a bit more of a, of a conversational discussion and less related to affect, I would think. These are your views, these are mine, and, and as you spoke to, a bit asking for a rupture. I would think. This has been a great dialogue. Now, when it comes to the future of this work and how we can do a better job of training the next generation of therapists to be more comfortable with this, what do you think from a training aspect we can do to hammer home some of the topics we have talked about today? Big thing is to make self-disclosure part of the training discourse. I got very little explanation, only self-disclose for the benefit of the client. Yeah, no kidding. But how do I do it? When do I do it? For how long do I do it? What are probably the good reasons? And how am I supposed to figure that out when I'm in the moment, when I'm brand new to therapy, when I have very little experience doing so, and I'm terrified of doing the wrong thing, and I really want to be helpful. And I've got to somehow consolidate all that into a moment that is tenuous. You know, this is, it's not necessarily a moment that's going to come back. How do I go about this? And in terms of how do I help as a supervisor, I have the responsibility probably to bring this topic up, perhaps to do some didactic instruction, to have some discussion with supervisees who are likely to perceive the topic as taboo. It may also require some support from the parent institution to, to make this part of the dialogue, because I think we could probably assume going into this that before trainees have gotten started with us, they've gotten little to no help. Only self-disclose for the benefit of the client. It's generally frowned upon. Next topic. And I, I think that's a real disservice. As a result of that, my solution was to spend two years of my life trying to figure out everything I could from academics. And that's that was my big takeaway for, for trainees is that we have to make this part of the dialogue. We have to bring this up and, and help trainees 
on some level start to develop their personal policy. I really like how you said that. And there is so many isomorphs or parallel processes between supervision and therapy. So it makes sense that that would be the place to deal with it. And you have helped us start this conversation today. Many of our listeners are young professionals and they use this podcast as a starting off point and they go back to their supervision. They go back to their accredited programs and talk about some of these things. This has been an important dialogue, again, driven by our listeners' interest. I got an email and I said, well, I'm going to go and see what's out there. And then I found your book. So here at the end, tell us, uh, yeah, tell us uh, one more time about the book that came out a couple years ago. And if listeners want to continue the dialogue with you, Graham, the best way to reach you. So the book's called Therapist Self-Disclosure, an evidence-based guide for practitioners. I'm really not just trying to sell the book. The benefit of reading it is that you can get a couple of years of work read in perhaps a weekend. Uh, it's, it's somewhere around 200 pages. There's both review of research and commentary by those that, that, I, that I, I both found as experts. You know, Barry Farber wrote a chapter in the book. And the other thing that I think the next generation of therapist listeners would really like is that majority of the chapters were written by postdocs, by newly practicing pr- practitioners. And although I didn't intend it at the time, I, I think it's, it's kind of a, a sense of what are we thinking about this going forward in into the future? Um, you know, how are in the past there was a movement from don't self-disclose all of you, even though I do it myself, from Freud. Uh, movement into a much greater level of reciprocity around civil rights. Movement into a, a more narrative-focused disclosure in the 90s. Michael White, the advancement of feminism, uh, solution-focused therapy, uh, and so forth. And, and what's next? And how do we figure out how to do this as a clinical field together? Yes, I did read it, and it is organized very nicely, and it is very practical. And I would even think, yes, it's great for young, chronologically and professionally young clinicians, but it's also great, like our conversation today, you made me think about articulating my own policy of, of self-disclosure, not only for my clients, for my students, for my supervisees. So there's many great takeaways in this book. Thank you so much, Graham. I can't thank you enough. It was a, a great dialogue. I really appreciate being here. And I forgot to mention, uh, if, if anyone would like to reach out to me, I'm, I'm happy to talk more, would, would really look forward to hearing not just what you liked about what I had to say, but if there's anything that you were, were less agreeing of, if, if you had some other other thoughts about it, I would really look forward to hearing that. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, also, my, my email contact is gdanzer, D-A-N-Z-E-R, at A-L-L-I-A-N-T dot E-D-U. And, and please feel free to reach out. I would look forward to hearing. Eli, back with you, bringing to close another informative installment of the AMFT podcast, where we seek to educate, innovate, and relate one episode at a time. Thank you to Graham Danzer. That content matters. Therapist self-disclosure was driven by listener feedback. In fact, I got an email to Eli at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com, and that is how that happened. So we empower you. Please drop me a line can email me. You can go to elikaram.com. That's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Eli Live and the AAMFT is simply at the AAMFT. So whether it's topics like that 
or hearing pioneering interviews from the movers and the shakers in the world of systemic therapy, people like Dick Schwartz, Sue Johnson, Bill Doherty, countless others. You can revisit our four seasons of podcast in the archives wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm partial to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, but you can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast. We appreciate a review and a star rating. Helps us rise through the ranks of the mental health professional podcast. I enjoy doing this and I hope you enjoy listening as well. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.